All right. Well, good morning, everyone. So we are in chapter 11 of Daniel. As Dad mentioned, uh, as uh, chapter 10 uh, came to a close, we saw some really fascinating things. Um, uh, a little uh, peek behind the curtain of what goes on with spiritual warfare. But the, <clears throat> the introduction is that uh, Daniel's going to get uh, another vision, and uh, a vision of, of um, for him, uh, which was uh, all future, for us, which is uh, partly history, and, and as we'll see, partly future. So that's going to be chapter 11. So um, a couple of introductory remarks. Uh, we've alluded to the fact that uh, many scholars uh, question uh, the timing of the writing of Daniel. Was it written in the 6th century uh, where the whole book is prophecy? Uh, or are there some parts of the book that are just, well, for lack of a better word, fake? Um, because some people say, well, it had to have been written much later than that. It had to have been written in the 2nd century. And, and one, of the, one of the arguments for that is to do with chapter 11 because chapter 11 has such amazing detail in terms of history that uh, if you don't believe in a God who's control of, in control of history, it would make you exceedingly skeptical uh, about this because it is just so closely aligned with what actually happened. So, you know, as, as we've alluded, you know, some people question Daniel and, and one of the main reasons for that is because of the detail that's in chapter 11. So before we look at uh, the verses of chapter 11, uh, let's look a little bit at the organization, or at least um, some sections, you might say, of chapter 11. So if you look at um, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, probably would be best uh, put together with the end of, of chapter 10. Uh, here we have... Uh, Beginning in, in Daniel 10, 18, uh, Daniel is talking, and then we get this, uh, uh, the, the angel, a uh, messenger uh, speaking. Uh, verse 18 says, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Remember, Daniel was just so overwhelmed with this vision that he, he couldn't talk, he could, couldn't get up, he was just wiped out. Verse 20, it says, Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. This is a spiritual enemy. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So this angel is saying that he is supporting Darius the Mede. Okay? So here we have uh, God's angelic being being very interested and supporting what was happen, happening with this pagan because God is in control of these world <coughs> events. All right, beginning with verse 2, we have 
a little bit of what's going to happen with uh, the kingdom of uh, the Medes and Persians, okay, um, which is where they are now. Then, beginning with verse 4, or verse 3 rather, we have a reference to Alexander the Great. We've talked about him. Verse 4, we have a reference to the four generals who took over the... Um, there, Alexander the Great's kingdom was actually divided up uh, much more uh, broadly than that, but it coalesced into these four main uh, generals' territory. So we have reference there. And then if you continue... Um, we have uh, the two main players of these generals were the, uh, the, the Ptolemies, which referenced the general in charge of the Egyptian uh, section, and the Seleucus, the, the leader of the, or the initial general of what became known as the Seleucid Empire, covering much of what would currently be um, the former Assyrian, and then the former Babylonian, and then the current um, uh, Medo-Persian area. What's going to happen from, say, chapter, uh, verse 5, rather, all the way through verse mm, 35 has to do with the, what are sometimes called the Syrian wars, the, the wars back and forth between this Ptolemaic uh, Empire and the Seleucid Empire um, all waging war and the main site of battle or, or at least uh, one of the, the main regions of conflict is the area of Israel um, or what would be called Palestine uh, using the, the more Greek uh, and Roman terminology. Um, so that's, that's all that section. Now Beginning with verse 36, through the end of the chapter, uh, this is where people start to disagree. From 35 backwards, from verse 35 backwards, everyone agrees, if you take the evangelical view that we do, that all of Daniel was written as prophecy, all of those events were future for Daniel. Okay. All of those events are history for us. Okay. Beginning in verse 36 forward, some people would say that is also history. That verses 36 and following uh, go on to elaborate. We'll hear about this player, uh, Antiochus IV. But more evangelical scholars who take a dispensational view that we've been talking about would start to see verses 36 and forward as perhaps also applying to the Antichrist. Even people who might think that verses 36 through 39 apply to Antiochus from a historical perspective recognize that by verse 40 it starts to be really hard to see history having been fulfilled yet. Okay? So that's the general outline. It's very historical. Now, 
I found a video. This is very interesting. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, Dad and I are digging stuff out and presenting. Sometimes we just are guides <laughs> to, to, to lead you to um, what we think are, are good representations. So I've got a couple of videos I'm going to show that give some graphical representation of this. And I think it's actually much easier to follow in that, in that way. Uh, there's a, a video, this is not a Christian video, uh, but there's a video that you can look up where the entire history of the world is played out on the course of a map and it shows the rise and fall of various empires. So you can watch the whole history of the world in 16 minutes and 35 seconds. It's, it's really pretty amazing. I'm going to show just a couple of minutes of this because it shows you um, how these things are happening and it's focused on um, the area that we're concerned about. So these events of Daniel are key moments in real history. You could pick up any history of the ancient world and it would follow almost exactly like the 11th chapter of Daniel. It's really amazing. Um, this map picks up, it's what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Remember before the Babylonians there were the Assyrians, right? And, and I'll point this out, we'll stop and start it. Can you get the lights in? Anybody else hearing that high whistle? I'm not sure what that is, but all right. So direct your attention to this area here. Mediterranean Sea, right? The Arabian Peninsula here. And this region here is the area that we're going to focus on. This is the Egyptian section. This would be uh, Greece and then Rome, of course. Uh, so we'll, we'll start it playing here. Keep your eye here and you'll see the color change. Here's the Medes and the leftover of the Babylonian Empire or the beginning of the Babylonian Empire. This is where uh, uh, Daniel starts. This now is a Medo-Persian Empire. All of this. All this green. Now, over here, you're going to see some stuff start to happen in Greece. Our timeline, 470 BC. A little more pink. We're going to see the influence of Alexander the Great because all of this area is going to turn pink very quickly. Egypt popping up here. 370 BC, we know Alexander the Great did his thing in 334 BC. Watch how quickly this changes. Boom. Macedonian Empire, that's Alexander the Great. But very shortly, we see the breakdown. I, I didn't stop it soon enough, but this is all. So here we already see this, uh, you can't read it, but this is the Ptolemaic area. We're going to see it divided up in just a moment in these four main areas with these big generals. Now we can see Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire, Ptolemaic. All right, so these are the big divisions. 
Rome is starting to happen. It's starting to be purple here. Got Parthia show up. This Parthian Empire is going to eventually subsume all this whole area. A lot of stuff going on in China. You see all this is really fascinating. Again, purple, Rome happening. Purple getting bigger. Seleucid Empire, Ptolemaic Empire still happening. The Parthians start to come forward. The Seleucid Empire gets reduced. Everything gets fractured and then that sets things up. Here we are uh, around 100 BC and you'll see purples just getting bigger and bigger. This is the Roman Empire advancing, advancing, and then taking over. Does that help? Yeah. I think it's kind of cool. Alright, let me switch gears. We're going to do another one, Dan. So, The best video I found that court that really pulled in this discussion about the Seleucid Empire and these wars, tying it in with Daniel 11, um, is is from a um, a commentator that definitely sees the history, um, but this is one that he starts to see uh, those latter verses um, really uh, as historical, not as in the future. As, as we have, have talked about, but the other part is so clear uh, that uh, I thought this was worth repeating. So this one's um, six minutes in full. We may stop it before then. And this one has audio, if I can get the audio adjusted properly. It's a continuation of the vision in chapter 10, and this time the angel explains basically everything. The vision begins by explaining that there will be four more kings after Cyrus the Great. These kings are probably Cambyses, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. Both Darius and Xerxes invade the Greeks, and with Artaxerxes the game changes a bit. Persia tries to disrupt the cities by pitting cities against cities, essentially causing disputes between the Greek city-states. Let me stop, stop here. He does a nice job. Here you have the Bible verse, right? So we're in verse 2. So you can kind of uh, get an idea as we go along uh, where these connections are. And for this reason, I didn't see uh, any reason for me to read every verse uh, because we're going to kind of go over it. And you can, um, you can kind of follow along or, or as you read over it again later, uh, you can connect it, but the vision kind of skips the rest of the Persian kings and simply explains that Alexander the Great will crush the Persians. His empire is short-lived and breaks up into several kingdoms and empires. The rest of this chapter, verses 5 through 45, are about the wars between the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucid Empire. The Ptolemies and Seleucids regularly go to war over the area of Syria and Palestine. In verse 6, the author alludes to a marriage between the daughter of the Ptolemies and the Seleucid king. This is probably an allusion to Antiochus Theos, a Seleucid king who reigned from around 261 to 246 BCE. His reign is largely marked by the Second Syrian War between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. This war was concluded with a marriage. Antiochus Theos sent his own wife into exile and married Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy II. 
after Ptolemy II dies, Antiochus kicks Bernice to the curb and takes his old wife back. Of course, in perfect soap opera style, his first wife, Laodice, poisons and kills Antiochus Theos. And this whole series of events leads to a succession problem, which leads to the Third Syrian War. Verses 7 through 12 allude to the Third Syrian War. Ptolemy III invades the Seleucid Empire to install the son of Bernice as king. He beats up the Seleucids. Unfortunately, by the time he gets to Antioch, Bernice and her children have been killed. Ptolemy III has so much success in this war that the Seleucid Empire is almost wiped out. He occupies Antioch for a while, and it appears that he reached Babylon before the war ended. Verses 13 through 19 refer to Antiochus the Great. In around 219, Antiochus began the Fourth Syrian War and took back many of the coastal cities that had previously been lost to the Ptolemies. However, in 217, when trying to invade Egypt himself, Antiochus got beat up pretty good, and this war ended. In around 209 BCE, Antiochus went to war against Bactria and beat them up pretty good. This war was settled with an arranged marriage between one of the daughters of Antiochus and the son of the king of Bactria. This marriage and the following peace allowed Antiochus the Great to focus all of his attention to the west again. Antiochus expanded the Seleucid Empire greatly and picked another fight with the Ptolemies. This would be the Fifth Syrian War, and this time Antiochus the Great ran wild through most of the Ptolemaic Empire outside of Egypt. In 200... Now notice, look at this area where the biggest dispute is. It stays purple and yellow this whole time. Uh, this is a weird um, uh, uh, translation, but this is Jerusalem. Uh, of all these massive empires that are going back, look where the disputed territory is. My word. Um, and of course this continues today. Antiochus the Great was planning on invading Egypt again, but this time the Romans told him that it wasn't a good idea and threatened him with war. So the Fifth Syrian War did not include Egypt itself. It should be noted that Rome's primary problem with any invasion of Egypt is that Rome received much of its grain from Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome, and the Romans didn't want that connection disrupted. A bit later, the expansion under Antiochus into Greece would bring him at odds with Rome. The Roman Republic beat up the Seleucids pretty good and forced the Seleucids to pay a heavy tribute. Antiochus died the following year in 187. Seleucus Philopater was the next king. His rule was marked primarily by heavy taxation Look at the detail about a tax At this point, this chapter is showing an amount of precision that the rest of the book simply lacks. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was the next king. His rise to power was marked by murder and intrigue, and a couple of other potential kings had to be killed in the process. Antiochus Epiphanes launched an invasion of Egypt. This would be the Sixth Syrian War, and he whipped Egypt pretty good. He essentially took the entire empire, but in order to placate the Romans, he left the Ptolemies intact and pulled out. On his way back home, he sacked Jerusalem, set up a puppet high priest, and Antiochus Epiphanes is said to have rededicated the Temple of Jerusalem to Zeus. In 168 BCE, Antiochus Epiphanes decided to attack Egypt again, but this time the Romans told him it wasn't a good idea, so Antiochus pulled back without invading Egypt. This army, after being turned around by the Romans, sacked Jerusalem a second time. 
The rest of this chapter simply explains some of the exploits of Antiochus Epiphanes, particularly his actions towards Palestine. Okay, so you see he's gone through great detail. Let me turn the lights on. He's gone in great detail showing how all of those verses, I mean, Bernice and the, all of that intrigue with the, uh, the divorce and the, the uh, assassinations, all that stuff, great detail lining up very closely with history. But then he covers, you know, a, a dozen or so verses and says, oh yeah, well this, the rest of this just talks about the further exploits of Antiochus uh, the fourth, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, so, you know, he loses some precision there because it just doesn't match up as close. It just does not match up as close. Um, so, the point here is that uh, the, the, the vast bulk of Daniel 11 uh, is, is history. Everyone acknowledges that. Uh, people see the parallels. And, uh, you know, it's, it's information that's easily available if you want to dig into it. Um, if you have a study Bible, there are probably maps uh, showing all this as well. Um, I'm not sure why the ESV study Bible actually includes an entire family tree of all of these Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. Uh, I'm occasionally interested in this stuff, but I'm certainly not going <laughs> to go through and, and go through all those. Uh, in any event, if you're interested, it's that information is out there. So, any questions about that? I mean, it's just broad, right? I mean, but it's history. It's history. So. I think it's fair to, to ask why is all this in there? Um, I think uh, what would if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes uh, what do you make of, of all of this? Uh, certainly I think the message would be that uh, there is turmoil ahead. He was praying by this time of course there's at least 50,000 Jews that are back in Jerusalem working on things. And here he has been told, he doesn't know the timeline, but, but knowing how battles went and knowing how slowly things moved in those days, he probably could have easily pictured, wow, Jerusalem is not going to experience any peace for a very long time if you if you consider the fact that these chapters were written with the nation of Israel in view this would not have really been of great comfort at least at this point to Daniel because he's he desperately needed to continue to pray for his uh, kinfolk uh, who were there trying to do the job of the um, rebuilding the temple and then later the wall and so forth all right so let's go and look at these uh, verses that are a little bit more uh, disputed and and uh, uh, and talk about them a bit so uh, I guess let's look at verse 29 
This is one of those sections that everyone does see Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in these verses. It says, at, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. All of this has to do with this desolation of the temple. Some people think that uh, they found a meteorite and put it in the temple and said, okay, this is no longer dedicated to the worship of Jehovah. This is now dedicated to the worship of Zeus. Um, all of that is in these verses. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall, take, shall stand firm and take action. So here is reference to basically uh, you know, false priests, you might say, people who violated the covenant versus people who know their God and, and stand firm. Uh, it's, so there's uh, Epiphanes has, has found a, a crack uh, between those two groups of people. Verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined purified made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time uh, this is starting to reference some of the Jews who um, are, are staying true to the authentic um, prophecy they're staying true to God they're um, uh, enduring all the craziness that's around them uh, these are the, the people that are hanging in there now, verse 36, it says, And the king shall do as he wills. So these transition verses, um, it, it seems that he's still referencing the same person that's been going on because it's talked about the king of the south and the king of the north and this sort of thing. And it says, And the king shall do as he wills. So uh, you can understand some of the dilemma for people who are working through this because it seems like we're still talking about the same person and this section here may be one of those areas where as we've seen often in prophetic language where you have a near fulfillment of the prophecy but you also have a far fulfillment of the prophecy and very often the near fulfillment is less complete right um Jesus kind of did this in the New Testament when they talked about um, you're going to see this temple destroyed, but then it's going to be rebuilt. You know, they did see the temple destroyed later uh, with Rome, but then they saw his temple destroyed uh, in the short run. And, and so there is, uh, and there are many other examples. Uh, so this section may be one of those that does apply to both, but the further you go through the end of the chapter, uh, probably 
it shifts to be even more future looking. Uh, so let's go through this. Uh, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself ab above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. So one thing that the commentators note who do take a more evangelical and perhaps dispensational view is that even though we don't have a great transitional verse uh, in verse, uh, start of verse 36, when it's still talking about the king, certainly the quality of the language changes. The quality is much more broad, much more magnanimous. Um, instead of these nitty-gritty details about what's happening there, here and there, now we've got this big language. He's exalting himself, magnifying himself above all, and um, he thinks he's the god of gods, and all this sort of thing. Well, as our little video showed, Antiochus Epiphanes had his limits. Who was the main limit? Rome, right? Every time he wanted to go down and take care of the Egyptians, Rome said, no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Off limits. So Antiochus did not have, Antiochus Epiphanes did not have the broad powers that it seems that the person being referred to here in verses 36 and following um, do. Now, verse 37 is, if you wanted to camp out and do some further research, and we may pick up a little bit uh, with this uh, next time. We're definitely going to cover the rest of this chapter um, beginning next week. Um, but if you want to think about a verse uh, in your study Bible, verse 37 is not a bad one because it describes this person. It says, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he, he shall magnify himself above all. So this is kind of interesting because this he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers have led some commentators to think that this is referring to a Jew because god of fathers is kind of a, a phrasing that has at times, or at least similar language, has been used to refer to the people of Israel. Um, now, the Antichrist is not a Jew. Um, so some people have said, well, this could refer to just a person forsaking all religion, okay? Uh, even Greek mythology and all that. And this could be further evidence that uh, the passage is not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes because we just saw that he established this Greek religion in the temple, right? So he was... Um, he was not forsaking all gods. Um, he was helping to establish um, other gods. Um, the second part, um, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. People have talked about, well, what does that mean, the one beloved by women? Um, some people think that if you're going to take the view that, that this is referring to a Jewish person, um, say that uh, that the women of Israel, the greatest honor that they could look forward to would be, um, could they be in the line of, of bringing about the birth of the Messiah? 
and that this was known as uh, something that that was that they had desired so some people uh, think that this is a messianic phrase um, uh, but again it gets to be hard to to fit that in uh, verse 39 we'll skip around he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price again uh, as the detail starts to to progress uh, over the course of the chapter they start to lose the connection with the historical Antiochus Epiphanes um, we do know that Antiochus Epiphanes did think of himself in godlike terms right um, in terms of his coinage and, and people even made fun of him in that regard um, but as we'll see he just did not have the unlimited authority that this person seems to have. All right, so this was almost like introduction to uh, to history. Um, we have um, uh, we're the the time of history um, uh, that we're talking about. I think is what's called Hellenistic period. Um, it's after Alexander the Great and all that. So um, again. We have this history lesson we had to cover it. That's the way we do things. Uh, we're going to dive in a little bit more closely, obviously, uh, from 36 to the end of the verse and, and talk a little bit more about uh, uh, how this relates to uh, what we think are end times and the Antichrist and, and so forth. So I guess we'll pause there. Any quick questions? He was still there in, you know, the, the what was now Persia. Yeah. 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 And he wasn't involved as far as the wars. He just saw them going. This is all future. This had not happened oh, yet. Yeah. Right? This all, um, you know, he, you know, you can jump ahead, but uh, we're looking at, he was looking over the scope of at least 300 years at Daniel 11 covers at least three, uh, almost 400 years. All right, uh, let's close. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who's in charge of all this. You are in charge of uh, all of history, and uh, truly um, it is your story. It is his story that is Jesus. We thank you that your hand is uh, on us even today, and pray that you'd give us um, uh, eyes of discernment as we come in uh, to the coming week and into these um, next verses. Uh, we thank you so much for the way that uh, you, through your Holy Spirit, can love and support all of those who are uh, ill and hurting and grieving. And um, we just pray that you would um, be especially real and especially close uh, to those today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.